You're listening to 84, the podcast for startup marketers and entrepreneurs where you learn everything you need to know about marketing in the B2B space that you can use to grow your startup and make an impact to your business. On this episode of 84, I'm joined by Roger Dooley. He's Forbes Brainy Marketing CMO Council, an author, a marketing professional, and international keynote speaker. And he uses neuromarketing principles to create content. He's been able to build huge website audiences, so his personal record is 3 million unique visitors a month. And he's also the author of two books, Friction and Brainfluence. He's the host of the Brainfluence podcast, which has featured Ryan Holiday, which you guys all know I love, Guy Kawasaki, and Nobel Prize winner Al Roth. And if that wasn't enough to convince you to hear him out, he's also got decades of experience leading digital marketing organizations and currently runs his own neuromarketing consultancy. Really excited to bring you this episode of AD4 with Roger Dooley. Uh, Quick note, though, that the first couple of minutes, we do talk about his experience being on the um, podcast of Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert. So if you want to skip past that little chat, um, just skip to about the five minute mark on this episode. Most of the Dilbert cartoons deal with the absurdity of uh, procedures and uh, bad processes, bad customer experience, and so on. So, uh, and well, oddly enough, uh, I got some great publicity from Scott Adams too uh, a few months ago. So uh, he's especially meaningful. But uh, the two were really initially unrelated. But I had Scott Scott Adams on my podcast, uh, and then he mentioned uh, my book and some stuff in a one of his daily broadcasts. Wow, that's really cool. Um, what was it like talking to Scott Adams and, and meeting with him? What did you ask him about, about Dilbert? Well, uh, we talked about Dilbert a little bit, but we were talking yeah. about his uh, book on Loser Think, which is about the thinking errors that people make. And uh, it was, uh, I think, pretty relevant to my audience, but we did get into uh, a little bit of uh, Dilberty stuff. And, you know, it's funny, you would think that, uh, I think he's been writing it for like 20 years now, uh, at or take a year. Uh, and you would think that he would run out of material at some point. But I think that our business uh, businesses are still so absurd that <laughs> you never run out. That's great that you actually mentioned that last night, I was reading um, the founders mentality, the three crises of growth. And um, one of the things it talks about is every startup company starts out with an insurgent mindset. And that is when they're, they're on a mission, they're at war against a certain you know, idea or concept or lack of service to, to the customer. And everyone is dialed into the mission really close to the customer and everyone's operating really, really quickly. And what they're trying to get to is a scaled insurgency where everyone's still in that same mindset, but now they're at a bigger uh, bigger overall level and there's there's a real lack of friction internally that prevents them from getting things done from you know doing the right thing for their customers but what always happens is that they become more and more bureaucratic and that starts to put more and more friction into their internal operations oh yeah. eventually totally ruining the company's growth um so friction i think is a really powerful force just like you said and um it, it, it affects companies internally and externally um, but I'm really interested in how friction applies to the marketing funnel or the buyer's journey and how mm-hmm. it can stop someone from, you know, engaging with your company and, and learning more about who you are and what you do. Sure. 
And uh, if you're, by the way, just to follow up on your earlier uh, the point you just made, uh, you might also enjoy a book called Loon Shots by Safi Bacall. Uh, it is about how companies structurally become unable to innovate. And uh, he's got a great uh, line. You've undoubtedly you've heard the line, the culture eats strategy for breakfast. Uh, I've heard it from Tom Peters. I don't know if he originated it or if he's quoting uh, somebody else, but uh, uh, that's been around for years. Well, uh, Safi's line is that structure eats culture for lunch. And by that, he means uh, that if your incentives are structured inappropriately, uh, then you will be unable to innovate. And by incentives, he means like, how do you as an individual succeed in the company? How do you get promoted? How do you get higher pay? Which is presumably the objective of most people in corporations is to uh, increase their pay and or their uh, position. And in large companies, often that means more uh, pleasing your boss uh, and not screwing up than taking a risk uh, and succeeding. The rewards for taking a risk and succeeding are okay, but for taking a risk and failing, making you look bad, making your boss look bad, uh, maybe messing up the quarter's numbers. Uh, and so Safi's point is that uh, you uh, need to have the right incentives in the way that you promote people, the way that you award raises, so that nobody is punished for uh, taking risk or for the occasional failure. And obviously you can't have somebody who fails every time they try, but uh, if you're going to do risky stuff, you're going to have failures. And Amazon's a good example of that. They expect failure. They celebrate failure. At least, you know, sometimes, uh, maybe your fourth one in a row, not so much. But anyway, uh, we should uh, get on with uh, your agenda here. So uh, you're, you're in charge. No, um, so I, I've been thinking a lot about actually management um, lately as I, I manage a marketing agency and that there's about, you know, 10 to 12 marketers on that, on that agency team I have. And I am trying to grasp how to best, you know, motivate them, how to train them, how to create processes so that they are operating and thinking in the way I want them to think rather than the way they've been perhaps taught to think or perhaps not taught to think by the agency. So these, these things around, around culture and, um, around process and management have been really interesting to me lately. So I think they'll be interesting to my listeners as well. Um, but yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's talk about um, some of the concepts from brainfluence and some of the concepts from friction and uh, discover how they might be applied to uh, support B2B startup marketing teams and um, you know, creating market share and brand awareness and generating leads and really driving pipeline. Great. And uh, just to be clear, this, uh, we are actually uh, doing the podcast now. Yeah. What I always like to do is I just like sneakily turn on the recording and I find I really just get a more natural conversation that way. Right. So no okay. one has just, their game face on. Yeah. Yeah. No, no problem. Just wanted to be sure. Uh, the, uh, I mean, boy, the concepts in the two books, uh, you know, we, we could spend uh, months on that, but you know, I think, there's sort of one underlying principle in both books, first of all, and that is that our behavior is driven by our brains, which often are not rational. They do not operate in a conscious, rational, logical fashion all the time. And, you know, for 
decades, economists thought that was pretty much the case. They developed all these mathematical formulas for why people did things and how you could change their behavior, except they weren't really representative of the real world. Uh, and then the work of Kahneman and Tversky came along and showed that, uh, yeah, okay, uh, people are not always making rational decisions, even presenting the same exact facts in a different manner results in a different decision. Uh, and uh, Gerald Zaltman at Harvard said that about 95% of our decision-making processes are non-conscious. Now that actual number is kind of unknowable because what's a process and how is consciousness uh, defined, whether you're conscious of something or not. But uh, basically the point is that most of what your brain is doing and the decisions you're making, you are not aware of. Uh, in Kahneman's terms, he broke it down into system one and system two thinking, where system one is fast, intuitive, emotional, uh, and mostly not conscious, versus system two, which is that sort of grind through it, analytical, logical decision-making process. And one of his key insights is that our brains don't like to be in system two. We will use that when we have to, but by and large, we try and operate in system one whenever possible. So if you are trying to persuade your customer with logic and reason and facts and figures, you are pushing them into that system two mode of thinking that their brain is not comfortable in. And uh, that's, that was sort of the basis for brain fluence. That, that book provides a whole host of techniques for enhancing your marketing using um, non-conscious approaches, using unconscious biases, using uh, all these various little uh, mental hacks, if you will, or brain hacks uh, that can help a marketer be more effective. Now, you know, I should mention right now, it's important that we use any of these tools in an ethical way. You know, anything can be manipulative, it can be wrong, just regular advertising can be deceptive or it can be truthful. You know, it, because people say, well, oh, wow, aren't you telling people how to uh, manipulate other people? And, you know, if you are helping in a sales process, getting somebody to a better place, then that's not manipulation. You are doing a good thing. You are selling a product that's going to help people. Uh, if you are convincing people to make a decision that they'll regret after 48 hours or after a week or two, uh, that they won't be happy with that decision, then you're manipulating. And, you know, I think Zig Ziglar is uh, probably the most famous salesperson ever and sales trainer ever. Uh, and he emphasized that the most important tool of persuasion that you have is your own integrity. And by that, what he meant, I think, is that, uh, again, if you are getting somebody to a better place that they will be happy with afterwards, then it's okay to use one of his 19 closing techniques that sound really manipulative. You know, the presumptive close, the uh, choice close, and all this close and that close. You know, it sounds like out and out manipulation, but he always was trying to operate in a mode where his customer would be happy with their decision and helping them overcome those barriers to that decision. That was, that was his job as a salesperson. And I think as marketers, that's our job too. And, you know, we can see all kinds of examples of this, and some of it is sort of extreme. Uh, when you visit a 
travel website, which we haven't been doing that much of lately, at least I haven't, uh, you see all of these non-conscious cues. You see that there are only two rooms left at this price. Uh, that would be scarcity, one of Cialdini's six principles of influence, now seven principles. You will see, you know, 53 people have booked this hotel in the last 24 hours. That's social proof, another Cialdini principle. And there are all these little hacks. You'll see countdown timers that, you know, we're holding this room for you for the next uh, 10 minutes. You know, and all these things are designed to get you to make a decision. You know, at what point does that become more manipulative? I mean, I, that's open to interpretation. To me, I find some of these extreme sort of attention hacks and persuasion hacks to be a little bit more of a manipulative dark pattern, particularly if they are not accurate. If there is truly one room left in the hotel, then I want to know that. But there are techniques that they use either by blatantly implying scarcity where there is none, that they're saying there's two rooms left, but actually there are a bunch of rooms, or they skirt the truth a little bit by saying there are two rooms left at this price, but should those two rooms sell, there will be a, another couple of rooms that come on at one cent difference or something like that. So they were technically truthful, uh, but still manipulative. You know, to me, I think that uh, if, as long as you were being truthful, then uh, that's really half of the battle right there. When you are deliberately misrepresenting things, uh, then that is unethical. Yeah, and I've, I've seen those timers and that sort of thing in a lot of business to consumer marketing. It's rare to see that in business to business marketing. And um, I wanted to test it at one of the startups I was working at. And I did in a small degree. Um, I didn't get to run the test long enough to um, actually find out if it works or not, because um, when I showed my leader the test, I said, hey, look, I'm trying this. I want to try adding scarcity and a countdown timer to this webinar registration and say we're only going to let 30 people in and something like that. And um, he was actually very opposed to the entire idea because, again, going back to this principle of truthfulness and that we can't misrepresent what the truth is. And second, he thought that our buyers were too intelligent and sophisticated to actually believe this, these type of timers. But the fact remains that they work and they work well on a lot of people in the business to consumer world. world. So the question I have for you is, when someone is in a B2B buying research process, are they in a more, um, system one or system two state of thinking even then? Because we're talking about enterprise software, right? Right. Well, I do a lot of business to business events and training and such. And, you know, the point that I always make is that those buyers, those decision makers are humans. And as a result, they are subject to the same cognitive biases that we all are. Now, their decision making criteria may be a little bit different. Okay. If uh, if I'm buying a fragrance, for example, uh, there are no real objective criteria. You know, I can't see uh, uh, whether fragrance A actually smells better uh, than B according to 80% of the consumers. You know, there, there's no objective data. It's, it's all an emotional appeal. Uh, this one is a little bit more romantic looking. This one's a little bit more matcha looking. Uh, but, uh, you know, the decision-making process, processes, even in business to business, are... Uh, can be have a, a lot of these cognitive biases. You mentioned a, a couple scarcity. Certainly, 
that can drive, uh, accelerate decision-making. If somebody believes that a particular offer, whether it's for a webinar or for a particular price will expire, uh, and if that's a legitimate thing, then uh, that you know, can change their behavior. They, uh, it's, it's important too that a B2B buyer is not all about, I mean, I think the common assumption is that, okay, well, a B2B buyer has, is interested solely in the specific performance characteristics of the product and the price. You know, and everything else uh, really doesn't matter. They will make the best and most rational decision every time. Uh, that buyer obviously has to buy products that are fit for the purpose. If they bring a product in that is uh, not fit, then uh, they will end up fired or demoted. If they buy, if they spend way too much for a product, then they will also have a problem uh, with their boss. But uh, their concern, you know, their other concerns that aren't stated uh, may be just as important. First of all, they are concerned about their job security. They want to be sure that any decision they make will not uh, put them in a terrible light and risk promotion or even termination. And I think the classic example of that is, uh, you recall the old saying, when IBM was the dominant brand of computers, nobody ever got fired for buying IBM. And that's why IBM was such an easy purchase decision. They were so dominant and so respected that uh, the buyer could buy from them. And even if the project went south, the buyer wouldn't get blamed for it and say, well, I bought IBM. You know, hey, uh, they, they didn't do it right. Uh, where if you took a chance on a brand other than IBM and it went south, your boss would be asking, well, why don't you just buy IBM? So, you know, I think that type of concern is real. Uh, there are, you know, nobody ever wants to be responsible for, say, shutting down a production line because the product wasn't delivered on time. Or, and if you talk about enterprise software, then the uh, consequences of a bad project there are enormous. I mean, that is like uh, building a, a factory for an automotive company. You know, either the, it puts out cars or it breaks and it doesn't, and the company goes out of business. So, uh, you know, there's huge risk involved in that. Uh, there is a tradition in that industry of cost overruns and of uh, having to uh, do things uh, differently, make changes later, perhaps at expense, or if, even if not at great expense, then at additional time uh, to make things work as expected. So it's, you know, it's very complex, and I'm sure that anybody making that kind of a purchase decision is a little bit insecure. Like They never know for sure whether they're making the right one even if they are buying a top brand, even if they're buying an upstart that has great reviews, doesn't matter. Uh, there is some insecurity in that decision. So uh, all of those factors, those non-conscious factors come into play here. So what are the, the nine unconscious factors? Um, is our scarcity in the other ones one of them or? Well, those are, uh, I, I mentioned Cialdini's originally six uh, principles of influence, and then a couple of years ago, he changed it to seven. After 30 years of six, uh, suddenly uh, slide decks around the world had to be scrapped and revised uh, to add his seventh principle, unity. Uh, but uh, the, uh, those are just one set of uh, techniques. They are things like scarcity, they're authority. And certainly in the software business, you see a lot of authority that, uh, hey, 
our product is used by Google. Uh, it's recommended by Accenture or whatever. You know, it's, uh, you see these calls uh, on authority that it's not just us saying this, it's other really smart, respected people who know a lot about this who are saying it as well. Uh, and everybody does that. And even celebrities are a form of authority. So I think if you had um, LeBron James endorse a software product, uh, he may know zero about software, but simply because he is such a celebrity, uh, there would be an assumption that, well, he must have uh, you know, had some reason for making this decision. Although I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it as a strategy, but that is a yeah. kind of authority. Uh, there is our social proof in you always want to show how many customers you have for your product, assuming you've got a lot of customers. If you don't have any customers yet, if it's a brand new product, then social proof isn't the way to go. There you want your authority saying, yeah, this is great. But if you've got a lot of customers, then telling people that will give them the comfort to know that this is a good decision. I mean, if you're deciding on a restaurant and you, there's two right next to each other, one has a line slightly extending out the door and the other has mostly empty tables, you might take the approach, say, wow, I can get right into that one. Or like most people, you would say, wow, this other one must be really good. The other one must not be very good. And you go get in line. So, I mean, you know, all of these uh, techniques, uh, liking is another one that I think can be very important in uh, any kind of sales process. And that is showing that you have shared attributes with your uh, buyer, your customer. Uh, and that can be anything. It can be a common interest, a common hobby. You're both golfers. You both like to fish. Uh, it could be that you went to the same school. You know, if you're uh, many regional schools have very strong followings. You know, if you're both uh, Aggies here in Texas or Longhorns, uh, that that goes a long way to establishing a common bond. Uh, and there are a million ways that you can establish those things. And today with tools like LinkedIn and other social media, you can find out a lot about people and find those things you have in common. You might find that some person that you want to approach, hey, uh, we did go to the same school. We were in the same fraternity. We uh, both have this uh, hobby-like interest in something. Maybe it's photography, who knows? Uh, those things can be uh, powerful um, developers of liking. Uh, and uh, this, uh, one, one example of how powerful that might be, uh, there is a great experiment called, uh, it's called the ultimatum game, where two people split uh, a sum of money. The experimenter gives one person a small amount of money, say $10, and says, okay, you can divide this with another person. You can keep it all, you can give it all away, or uh, apportion it between yourselves in any whole dollar increment. Now, uh, the a logical approach to that would be for the first, and the second person has the ability to either accept or reject the offer. If they reject the offer, nobody gets any money. If they accept the offer, then both people keep the money. Uh, now, the logical strategy for the first person from a purely rational standpoint, if computers were playing this game, it would be to offer the other person one or two dollars, which is still better than the person had to begin with. So a logical recipient would say, okay, well, yeah, you're keeping it all for most of it for yourself, but I'll still take it because it's more than I had. In fact, when this is played with humans, uh, it ends up with a third of the time uh, failed deals uh, and uh, 
you know, it's, uh, it's really quite uh, unexpected. The, and it's because often the first person misjudges the second person's willingness to accept a bad offer. Scientists consider fair offers to be a four and six, six and four, five and five. And the other extremes are favoring one side or the other. Uh, and, uh, but they did find that there was an intervention that took that failed deal percentage uh, down from a third to just one in 20. Uh, and that simple intervention was to let the people talk to each other for 10 minutes. So it's an important lesson for sales, but you know, I think the, the deeper lesson there is probably what is happening in those 10 minutes of interaction. They're not allowed to discuss strategy. They don't know about the game yet. They've just had a chance to talk to each other for 10 minutes. Uh, what happens there is they find they've got something in common. Often these experiments are conducted in university settings. So you find out that, oh, you lived in the same dorm the first year, you had the same uh, English professor, you know, something. Uh, inevitably, two students at the same university, after talking for 10 minutes, will find they have a few things in common. And uh, that might be enough to establish liking. And as a result, you get more fair deals and even greater acceptance of unfair deals by the second person, simply because they've done this. So I have a question. Um, sure. So this type of um, liking building, it's, it's straightforward fairly to do following these types of principles of, hey, we have this in common, we have that in common, when you're actually to the point where a prospect is having a conversation with the salesperson. Um, but much of the work I do in marketing is before anyone actually has a conversation with the human. So when, when I heard this, and that, that ultimatum game case study shared is actually really powerful because that 10 minutes of conversation produced more than like a 10 to 20x increase in the amount of deals that closed, agreements that were reached. So building liking is definitely really important. Now, most of my like building, like building that is, has to happen um, through the written word through, and through media. So I, when I start to think about that, I think that um, the things like uh, your company's mission, your values and what you stand for in the marketplace, um, that has to do with building that commonality. So I think the content and some of the copy really has to talk about, hey, we stand for this, we like this, we're, um, we believe this is more important. And people that also agree with that will read that and think, hey, this, this company is me. And then that'll engage that system one decision-making and get them to like you more, which will lead them to want to accept uh, exchanges of value that a marketer is offering much like a deal. So they'll get, it'll get them to accept landing page conversions and all, all that sort of thing. Um, I think the big challenge that um, I always have in, in B2B SaaS marketing is that in order to get someone to get to that stage of liking, I have to promote free things to them. I have to give them value. And it's a hard thing to know how much value to give them before I start to ask for something in return. How, what are some indicators that we can, I, I could use perhaps to determine that someone has reached a stage of, of liking that would make them um, interested in, in moving forward with, with making a deal? Right, well, let me, let me comment on the liking thing first. Uh, I think that you do in, um, have a good point. Uh, if you are selling a, uh, uh, you know, in, in the marketing mode for a B2B product, sometimes that uh, common interest uh, is really hard to come up with, okay? The, uh, if, 
in some cases, maybe not so much. If you're selling to automotive companies, uh, then showing that you are uh, automotive oriented, automotive people, your car guys, car gals, uh, you know, in a picture of your uh, CEO and his uh, vintage uh, car, his sports car, whatever, you know, that, that's one way. But if you're selling industrial shelving to diverse customers uh, or selling software across a wide range of industries, you know, it's a little bit tougher. Nobody is uh, really that uh, emotionally invested in software, uh, at least on the buying side. So uh, sometimes you can use something unrelated. One example that I use, it's, it's a B2C example, but it's kind of interesting. Um, you may have heard of Tito's Vodka. They are based here in Austin, where I am, and they have become, I guess, uh, the top-selling vodka now. One of their strategies uh, has been to call themselves Vodka for Dog People. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. That is... Uh, vodka for Dog People uh, has, well, has no meaning. They're is no relation between the two fields. Uh, dog people are mo more, no more likely to prefer vodka than any other spirit or vice versa. Uh, but what they did was see a large group of customers. There are something like, I don't know, 46 million families or people that own dogs in the US. And so they are tapping into a huge user base that hopefully they aren't offending other users like perhaps those people who are cat people. Uh, but saying, hey, we're like you. And uh, so, you know, I think they've established liking through another means. And so that's, maybe there's something that could be used there, even in other settings, by just by showing something about your people uh, or different people's hobbies and such. Maybe a buyer will find something they have in common. But uh, to uh, your point, you talk about delivering value first, and that is invoking reciprocation or reciprocity. Another Chaldini principle, uh, you know, when you give somebody a free webinar that's actually very instructive for them, whether or not they're gonna buy your product, you're delivering value. If you give them a white paper that isn't just a sales document, it's something that gives them information they can use, you are giving them value. And in return, uh, they will be more likely to give you something back and there's just a million experiments uh, that have been run over the years showing that reciprocation works. That when somebody does something for you, you are more likely to do something for them. Now, where you draw that line, I think it comes down to a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, you want to be sure that you are uh, delivering uh, sufficient value without immediately turning it into a sales pitch because then it really makes people question your motive. Uh, you know, there is a something called the um, let's see, product launch method. I'm trying to think of the author that was, uh, talked about that, wrote that book, uh, uh, Jeff, somebody or other, but uh, it's uh, uh, his standard approach. He uses a webinar approach as the lead into his uh, sales funnel. And he and all of the clients that he works with use three webinars. There is a first webinar that is 100% value. There is only a hint that at some point down the road, there will be a sales pitch coming. There is no overt sales pitch. There is nothing, no opportunity to buy nothing. It is purely instructive. The second one is mostly instructive, uh, but does get into 
a little bit more of a sales pitch talking about what additional learning might be available and so on, and what, you know, what additional benefits beyond the free offering might have. Uh, and then the third one is a, a much stronger sales pitch that builds on what's already been offered. So, you know, I think that the idea there is not that there's anything magical about three webinars, but I think the takeaway from that is, and he and many other people have been very successful with this approach. It's been used across all kinds of products and launches. Uh, uh, the key takeaway is that you have to uh, deliver value first with no expectation of anything in return. That's what creates reciprocation or reciprocity. That's what the first one and most of the second one do. Now, whether you, maybe you do that with a, a sample or with a, a product that delivers some functionality. You know, uh, in my book, Friction, I talk about some of the uh, onboarding processes that products have used that make it very, very easy to get going, where you get a free product. You don't even have to give them a credit card. You don't have to give them anything, but you can get the product uh, for free. And that will be a in some cases, which I don't like too much, it'll be a crippled product. So, well, you can sort of see how it works, but it puts a giant watermark in the middle of whatever it's delivering, so you can't really use it for commercial purposes. Uh, what Evernote did was really quite brilliant. They gave people a very functional product that probably 90 plus percent of the users would never have to pay for. Their, the product was so useful and so functional, but they knew that some portion of the people would start using it to a sufficient degree that they would need more space, more functionality, and they'd end up becoming paid subscribers. And that business model has served them incredibly well to the point where they are, uh, you know, sort of the de facto uh, product in their category used by everybody, and they have enough paid users to make them profitable as well. So, you know, to me, that is, uh, a combination of my two books. Uh, first of all, you've got reciprocation going where they're giving people something for free, where I felt very good about Evernote when I started using it because, wow, hey, this is a really functional product, does what I need, it's great, I love it. This is a wonderful company. Uh, and then uh, when I, uh, you know, I ended up uh, using it so much, I ended up paying for it. Uh, so uh, they minimized that onboarding friction uh, without all the complicated processes that many companies put you through. You know, a lot of companies will say, okay, we're gonna give you this for a free trial period and we're going to uh, get your credit card info up front. Uh, now, there is a logical reason for doing that. Uh, that is to take advantage of inertia, that you know, we're gonna give you this for two weeks. If you can cancel it if uh, you like, otherwise we'll start charging you for it. And uh, there's, there's some validity in that. And if a company wants to test both ways of doing it, that's fine with me. Uh, but it is not really establishing reciprocation. It's saying, okay, uh, you're, we're going to uh, force you to remember to cancel this. And if we don't, we're going to charge you. And then you're going to have to figure out uh, whether you can get out of this uh, afterwards. Uh, and I've seen some uh, deals like that uh, where they almost approach dark patterns where they make it very easy to subscribe and very difficult to unsubscribe. And, you know, that uh, is not really a way to build a brand, I don't think, where people end up with a negative feeling about the brand and are unlikely to recommend it to others. So 
you talked about how onboarding in a product is one of the biggest areas um, for friction. What are some other areas where friction is being created um, when we're talking about acquiring uh, customers for software? Well, I I think very simply the initial conversion process, if you are trying to get people to request information or to sign up for something, even if they're not gonna become full product users immediately, you wanna make that process as simple and easy as possible. And most people get this, but you know, it's funny how many companies, even big brands that should know better don't. I just wrote about at Forbes a study of user experience in the banking industry where people are signing up for accounts. Now, you know, everybody has had a bank account. It's not a complicated process. It doesn't require training and whatnot, but the differences between different institutions was phenomenal. The lowest number of clicks required to set up an account was 24. The highest number was 120. So basically one brand had five times more clicks in their setup process uh, than another. Uh, and then even worse, uh, to get the account available for use where it went through whatever process it went through on the other end, took as little as two days or three days for a handful of brands and as many as, I think it was 32 working days for uh, one bank. And that was a big old line established bank. Uh, imagine waiting a month and a half to be able to use your new account. So, you know, I think that if you want to convert people, uh, making that process as simple and easy as possible, taking that friction out, and you can't uh, rely on, oh, well, we're a little bit better than our competitors, so it's okay. That's a mistake. You people today, people are comparing you not to your direct competitors necessarily. They're comparing you to those, them, of course, but they're comparing you to Amazon, to Uber. You know, if your app is not as easy to use as Uber, uh, if your website isn't as easy to use as Amazon, then they will consider it a high effort process. Uh, and effort has a huge impact on people's perception of your brand and their loyalty. Uh, the stats are just staggering. Uh, if people have a high effort customer service experience, you know, in the software business, customer service experiences are pretty common because there are technical issues. There are, uh, you know, constantly support needs to come up. And when those, when people have to switch channels, you know, they start out uh, uh, in an online chat and they have to call into a toll-free line if they start on Twitter and are referred to some other channel, you know, if they talk to a first level person and then they're said they finally have to talk to a second level person and even worse, that's bad enough. Being, if the first person can't resolve it, that's bad. Uh, if they have to then re-explain the problem or worse, re-authenticate uh, with a second person, uh, that's a problem if they have to wait for a call back from a second person or if they have to do it at a different time. I mean, all of this stuff uh, creates a huge amount of effort. Uh, and in those conditions, uh, the numbers about uh, reviews and saying bad things about the brand are absolutely staggering. This is research from Gartner, the big market research company. When people had a high effort customer experience, they were 88% likely 
to say bad things about the brand compared to just 1% of low effort customers. So, you know, every time you force your customers to go to uh, some additional effort to deal with you, to resolve a problem, to uh, place an order, anything, uh, that you are increasing the chance that they will give you a bad review, they will give you a bad rating, drop you a star, you will get a worse net promoter score and the CEO will be very unhappy and so on. So uh, taking effort out of every single process is absolutely critical. And um, one thing I wanna talk about that isn't necessarily related to marketing going off track here a little bit, but I'm, I'm working with a startup that um, focuses on a customer onboarding software. And um, we've been thinking about this concept that um, it's customer onboarding software for B2B SaaS companies to use when onboarding enterprise customers, right? And what we've seen is there's a disconnect between um, what's presented by marketing, what's presented by sales, and then what's sold, and the experience that's sold and shown in the product itself. And then the actual onboarding experience, unfortunately, is often done through Google Sheets, through a really clunky and poor high effort process before they actually get access to the product. Now, I'm curious to know if you found any data or research that shows that, you know, being discongruent from what's been set before causes a lot of friction or, you know, um, think, things of that nature. Well, yeah, I think that uh, probably you've seen this classic illustration. I know that uh, I was originally an engineer many, many years ago. And even then, uh, there was a cartoon that was circulated, variations of it, about what the salesperson sold and they show a tree swing that's absolutely beautiful. It's got all these features on it. Uh, then what the designers designed, which is something a little bit different than that, uh, than what was installed where the uh, swing is blocked by the tree trunk and so on. And you know, it, it just gets worse and worse. Uh, the, the farther you get in the process, the more it diverges from what was sold. So this is not a new thing that's related to software or technical products. This is something that has been going on as long as people have been selling products. So uh, yes, it is uh, very uh, important to keep that continuity of experience going. You know, if people are, uh, have unhappy surprises, then they will, again, be likely to say bad things, give you bad reviews and be unhappy. They will uh, want refunds, compensation, and depending on the kind of product and the circumstances, uh, they may return it if it's a returnable product. You know, any surprises along the way should be good, but the best surprise normally is no surprise. You know, I do a lot of business with Amazon. Most of my online shopping goes through Amazon, and you know, a lot of companies talk about customer delight and surprises and good things happening. You know, Amazon has never delighted me. There's never been something extra in the box that I wasn't expecting. You know, I've never gotten a handwritten note from Jeff Bezos thanking me for my order. But they just deliver consistently what I ordered at the exact time they said they were going to deliver it. Every single freaking time they do it uh, without fail. You know, uh, I can't recall the last time I had a problem with an incorrect shipment or even a blown delivery date. You know, and that's really, I think, what people like. So when, when there's a disconnect, when people are promised one thing, uh, the salesperson says, yeah, well, we'll get this done in a couple of weeks and it ends up being a month. 
you know, every time there's a deviation, that is uh, a source of negative feeling about the brand and the company and the overall experience. So yeah, that's uh, absolutely critical. And onboarding is just so important. You know, I have been playing with video lately, being uh, now isolated, but usually I do a lot of in-person conferences and workshops and keynotes and such. But we haven't been traveling for months, so I had to refine my video abilities to be able to produce video content. And I own, I pay for Adobe Creative Suite, including the uh, Adobe Premiere, which is a very powerful video production tool. Uh, I tried to use that. I started off with their instructional videos, but there were a bazillion instructional videos that you could take uh, a week or more to go through. Uh, I tried using the tools, which I'm somewhat familiar with Photoshop, and I assume the interface is uh, familiar. Uh, I failed utterly. You know, after spending hours beating my head against uh, the wall trying to uh, just do some very simple tasks, uh, you know, combine videos, drop out a background, do this, do that, uh, I gave up. Uh, and I went to another product that I had to pay a little bit extra for. I had owned an early version, so I had to pay for an upgrade. Uh, but I upgraded to the current version of Camtasia, which I found to be very easy and intuitive to use. The onboarding process was simple. Uh, I could solve most problems just by looking at it. Uh, there was a useful help function. There was a if not, a quick reference to Google would point me exactly what I wanted uh, to accomplish. And it was very simple. And within uh, an hour, I was being productive. So, I mean, to me, that is the uh, critical thing. You know, if, if your onboarding process is overly uh, complex or confusing, you are doomed. People will do something else just like I did. Um, let's talk a bit about, we have a couple minutes left here. Um, let's talk a bit about how friction can impact um, teams inside of a company and prevent them from really moving quickly and, and operating in a systematic and efficient manner. Right. Well, first, uh, I should uh, clarify, Maya, that I am not talking about interpersonal friction in the book. I, uh, it's, it's a disclaimer at the beginning because there have been books about friction, but mainly how uh, abrasive people often are bad for teams and yeah i don't have so questions on. about that either um yeah, it's okay, more okay, around good. the processes and, and the way that right the yeah you know the companies we set up the the best companies make it easy for individuals and teams to accomplish what they need to do you know they minimize unnecessary meetings they minimize unnecessary emails you know i just uh, saw that I, in, in friction, I write about those things and how much time people spend in meetings. Uh, and I, at one point, I had an employee. I'd been an entrepreneur for years, uh, but I did a brief corporate stint when I sold a business and it was acquired by a large, uh, very large uh, public corporation based in the UK. Uh, and so I became a corporate exec for a few years. And we had our share of meetings as a typical corporation. I had a person working for me. She was a product manager uh, and she was really not getting much done in the way of innovating products, finding better ways to do things, seeing what the customer needs were and so on. And so I sat down with her and looked at her schedule and she had in a typical week, more than 30 hours of meetings booked. Uh, this was just a very typical week for her. Uh, and that was, those were the, 
that didn't even count email. Now, maybe she was able to do email in some of those unproductive meetings. I don't know. But, you know, at the end of the day, at the end of the week, she had essentially zero free time to innovate, to work on important stuff, or for deep work, which we all know you've got to have some uninterrupted time for deep work. So, you know, to me, eliminating all of that unnecessary crap and bad procedures too, you know, often uh, people are following procedures that are unnecessarily complex. There are approvals for things, you know, okay, to do this particular task uh, requires uh, an approval from two levels of managers. You know, I, I talk about some classic examples uh, from Jack Welch's day at General Electric when he was the most innovative and most effective CEO, perhaps of all time in the late 20th century. And there was a plant newsletter that required six layers of approval to go out. This was in a, in a newsletter that had won awards, but because of the company processes, you know, everyone wanted to make sure that nothing inappropriate went out. So they had all these approvals. So they said, okay, we were going to do away with that. We're going to empower the person doing it to make the right decision and eliminated uh, this entire process that added a huge amount of time and wasted everybody else's uh, uh, time as well. Uh, and they were able to get the newsletters out promptly and efficiently. You know, it's just one example of bad processes. You know, often there are trust-related processes. Expense reporting is one of my pet peeves where companies have really onerous processes for reporting expenses because they are afraid that employees will cheat. They uh, oftentimes, if you have a little bit of trust, uh, these processes can be simplified and save employees a lot of time and effort. And also trust is reciprocated. If you show me that you trust me, I'm more likely to trust you in return. If you show me that you distrust me by saying, okay, well, gee, Roger, you didn't have that $2 coffee receipt, so we can't reimburse you for it, then uh, I am going to be less trusting in the company itself. So let's, let's summarize a bit here. I've been taking thorough notes of everything you've been saying and really, really enjoyed this conversation. Um, but I think if I try to sum it up into a couple of sentences, I think the big takeaway is one that our behavior is really driven by unconscious factors for the most part. Now it's impossible to estimate exactly how much, but for the most part it is. And we have two systems of thinking, uh, emotionally driven systems and a um, analytical system. We prefer to use the emotional system. Now to engage the emotional system, marketers must ethically use principles of persuasion such as scarcity, social proof. But there are other things that are even more powerful that marketers should use, such as um, creating very smooth experiences, creating consistent experiences, and looking for opportunities for, to, for marketing teams to save prospects time and save effort and to provide value without asking for anything in return. And also one big, really important thing to do is to somewhere, somehow in your copy, align yourself with the perspective that your buyer has on the world, on the problem in your market. And that is really how you're gonna build liking. And I think out of everything that we talked about, that bit about building liking was the biggest takeaway for me. Um, and the, the way you explained it, that liking is showing that you have things in common with the prospect. Um, 
is and that how how big of an impact that had on the number of deals that were that were reached in that experiment um, was was really fascinating to me. Um, all right, so thanks. Yeah, well, any thoughts to some? Yeah, this I, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, if I can uh, do that, I may I'll yeah. build on your last point a little bit because I mentioned that Bob Cialdini introduced a seventh principle. Uh, to everyone's surprise, that principle is unity. And it is more or less liking on steroids. It is not a shared attribute. It's a shared identity. And, uh, you know, it is familial. Uh, it is somewhere something is part of your identity. And I'll, I'll give you one short example of a company that has done that with both its employees and its customers. Uh, during uh, this pandemic, we've seen uh, a lot of companies under stress. One company that has performed amazingly well has been HEB, the Texas supermarket chain. Uh, they are uh, at the top of practically every chart you can imagine for customer preference, uh, for uh, brand liking, for employee uh, preference. Employees love to work there. And one thing that they have done to create all of this uh, is uh, emphasized their common Texas roots. They are, their only US stores are in Texas. Uh, so basically, uh, all of their U.S. employees are Texans, uh, all of their customers are Texans, uh, and they have worked this shared identity, not in a manipulative way, but uh, they have emphasized that when you go into their stores, you are surrounded by Texas imagery. Every one of their house-branded products uh, is, has some kind of a Texas theme. And when the pandemic hit, uh, they doubled down on the theme, Texans Helping Texans. Uh, and uh, this was for employees, for their customers, uh, for everybody. And what we saw was their employees rallying around uh, during a very difficult time when, you know, Amazon has produced a great customer experience with super loyal customers. I think their employee experience hasn't been quite as strong. We've seen some fraying at the edges there with warehouse workers walking out, complaining about uh, inadequate protections and so on. Uh, what we saw at HEB were uh, their headquarters employees going into the warehouses to work to help fulfill orders, especially when those early days when the shelves were empty, uh, people couldn't get paper products. Uh, they had people volunteering to go in to work long shifts uh, and get it done. And this was because of their use of what uh, Cialdini calls unity, that shared identity. We are all Texans in this together. We're helping each other. And it's very, very powerful. Yeah, I love that uh, bit about um, the headquarters employees going in to warehouses to go to help fulfill orders. Um, that's, I think I read this in, in Jocko Willink's book. Um, he's this crazy, nazy, nazy, Navy mm -hmm. SEAL guy. And um, he talks about this thing called lead from the front. And I think that really shows that, that idea of leading from the front of, uh, of what's happening directly where the customer is. Um, and I, I also love how how they they really did build that principle of unity. They aligned their company around a mission. They aligned their mission with their market, and they brought that all together in a really cohesive way, in a really predictable and and, and regular way as well. Um, so yeah, definitely something interesting to think about there. Um, so if if people want to connect with you further, what's the name of your podcast? Where can they go listen? And um, where can they get your new book? Right. Okay. Well, uh, my two books are Brainfluence, uh, uh, and my latest one is Friction. Uh, they're both available at Amazon and all the other uh, typical locations, including Audible formats and such. 
the uh, best jumping off point for me is rogerdooley.com. You'll find my Brainfluence podcast there. And I have links to my Forbes blog, my neuromarketing blog, uh, and my social media profiles. Uh, on social media, I'm easy to connect with. I'm on, I'm on pretty much everything as at Roger Dooley or some variation of Roger Dooley, uh, but I'm particularly active on Twitter and LinkedIn. Nice. And what is it you spend your time doing these days? Are you primarily um, just writing books or do you, do you offer um, you know, neuromarketing and brainfluence consulting practice services to, to large businesses, trainings? Well, mainly I am writing both. I'm, and it's tough to keep all my various uh, outlets uh, uh, stocked with uh, content. I'm doing a weekly podcast and so on. Uh, but I do... Uh, Keynotes and workshops uh, these days are remote, but I'm hoping soon to be able to get back out uh, uh, where I can interact with people in person again, because that's really one of the great rewards of uh, this kind of a career is being able to meet people face to face, find out how they've employed your ideas or how uh, what you said that excited them. And it's a little bit harder to do on a remote basis uh, and a little bit of uh, consulting here and there, but I uh, tend to focus more on the speaking and training piece. Nice. All right. Well, thanks a lot for coming on 84 today, Roger. And uh, it was a pleasure having you. And welcome back anytime. Perhaps we'll uh, talk about some neuromarketing research next time. Maybe. Well, thank you, Amay. It's been fun. All right. That's it for this episode of 84. Thanks for joining me for another episode. And I hope you got some interesting tidbits and information about neuromarketing and marketing to the unconscious that you can use to craft your sales offers and write really much more effective copy. Um, if you enjoyed the show, please hit that like button. Or if you're listening on iTunes, please hook me up with a four or five star iTunes review. Uh, don't forget to subscribe. And um, I know I've been away for a little while, uh, mostly because of you know all these things happening with COVID and uh, the job market. Uh, it's been a very disruptive time for me professionally and personally, um, but hoping to get back on a weekly publishing schedule here. And uh, thanks to everyone that's listening. We are now in 14 countries worldwide. So to my seven average listeners per episode, uh, thanks for listening. And um, yeah, I would love to uh, get to know you sometime and you know see, see more about who you are. Uh, probably, uh, if this ever scales, maybe we'll even make some sort of podcast community around this, um, where we can swap marketing ideas and best practices, and just create a cool network for ourselves of digital marketers and content marketers and B two B SaaS startups around the world. Um, anyways, I'll see you guys next time on eighty four.